Welcome to the EAU podcast series on Euro-Oncologic Surgery Driven by New Technologies. In this fourth and last episode of the series, we have here with us Ricardo Ortorino, Professor of Urology and Director of Surgical Innovation and Clinical Research at Rush University in Chicago, USA. Also, Giovanni Enrico Cacciamani, Associate Professor of Urology and Radiology at University of Southern California in Los Angeles, USA. Together, they will explore artificial intelligence application for urologic cancer detection and classification. Join us for an enlightening debate on the latest advancements in urology. Hello, everybody. My name is Ricardo Torino. I'll be moderating uh, this session on artificial intelligence in urology. Uh, our guest today uh, will be uh, Dr. Giovanni Cacciamani. Dr. Cacciamani is Associate Professor of Urology and Director of uh, AI Center of Urology at University of Southern California in Los Angeles. And he's also chair of the Yao Young Academic Urology Group in Eurotechnology and Media, part of the European Association of Urology. So, Joe, uh, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ricardo, for having me here today. So, Joe, I would say we should start with some, uh, you know, for those who don't know anything about AI, we should start with some basic, uh, you know, definition about AI, machine learning. Can you touch base on those uh, a little bit so we can at least pair the ground for the later discussion? Thank you, Ricardo, for, uh, you know, giving me the chance to uh, explain a little bit more, uh, maybe in a digested way, how we can define artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, and also generative AI. So uh, usually when uh, I, uh, you know, teach to our residents or to the fellows on uh, this kind of uh, technical aspects, I usually use the same way to explain to my niece that he has, uh, he is uh, uh, nine years old. So just to give an example, artificial intelligence, technically speaking, is a branch of computer science, science that dealing with the creation of machines that can think and learn uh, like human beings. One of the things that we have to consider is that artificial intelligence is not new. It's something that started almost 72 years ago when Alan Turing, uh, I'm pretty sure that a lot of you knows about Alan Turing uh, uh, because of the biographic uh, uh, movie that was released a couple of years ago, The Imitation Game. Uh, Alan Turing is, is considered one of the father of the uh, modern computer machinery, but also the father of the artificial intelligence. As much as uh, almost 72 years ago, Alan Turing contributed in uh, ending the Second World War. How? He invented a machine that was able to decrypt in Enigma. Enigma was uh, a machine uh, to uh, making uh, encrypted messages between the Nazis. And uh, he basically find out a way, uh, a machine way for translating and decoding uh, those messages, of course, contributing to the end of the uh, Second World War. In uh, one of his uh, first publications in the f- uh, 1952, which and the title of the, of the uh, publication is uh, The Imitation Game, same as uh, the movie, Alan Turing was asking what happens if uh, a machine can bring a task uh, from A to B as uh, a human could potentially do. And with that particular paper, uh, almost again 72 years ago, he invented and he started basically the entire journey of artificial intelligence. So coming back to the definition, as I was saying, artificial intelligence is a branch of the uh, computer science that is dealing with the creation of machine that can think and learn like humans. And uh, when I try to explain to a child, for example, to my niece, I usually say that imagine that if your toys uh, can think and make a decision uh, on their own, just uh, like us. And AI is basically giving uh, a brain to the machine. 
And when you're going deeper and deeper, we go basically to what we call machine learning. Machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence where machine learn from data uh, without being explicitly programmed for specific tasks. And this is basically related to what we call training. So you train a machine, you teach to the machine how to uh, make a task, and the machine at some point will start doing this task by itself. And uh, again, when you are trying to translate this, digest this to a child, you could potentially say that imagine in terms of uh, regarding machine learning, imagine if your, your toy could learn a new game just watching you playing. And uh, that's machine learning. Instead of telling it to make uh, the toy figure it out things uh, by itself, just looking at pattern. Going deeper and deeper, you have what we call deep learning. And uh, deep learning is basically a type of machine learning that uses neural uh, networks uh, like uh, the human brain with many layers to analyze uh, various sources of data. And uh, because you have different uh, layers in the uh, network, uh, the prediction of what we, it could be, the outcome is going to be you know, better. So again, trying to translate this uh, to a child, we can say that imagine that your toy has superpowers and it takes way for learning new things and uh, using a lot, a lot of learning parts inside. That is deep learning. It's uh, like how your brain, our brain has many tiny parts that help us thinking. And uh, then we go to what basically come up to the, to the spotlight very recently, which is the generative AI. And uh, generative AI is a branch of artificial intelligence, is a, an AI that has uh, all the intelligence, all the capabilities as a human do for uh, doing a wide range of tasks. And it can actually generate something or uh, way better, regenerating something from something that is already present. When you explain this to a child, you should say that imagine that your toy could not only play games, but also read stories, uh, solve puzzles and whatever, and uh, even paint pictures uh, by itself. That is like a super smart toy. And uh, this is what is uh, uh, generative AI. Thank you. And uh, this is actually a nice, very nice comparison you made with uh, the toy. It's very easy to understand. So having said that, what are the potential applications in urology, specifically also for uh, to urologic cancers? So can you give us an overview of which areas from uh, diagnosis to prognosis to surgery to, to all the things that we where we could potentially use this new technology? Yeah. So in terms of a potential application, artificial intelligence can be used, for example, for uh, diagnosis, increasing uh, the accuracy, uh, patient workflow optimization or automated detection, for example, or improving uh, what we call the enhanced computer vision. So you have radiological and pathological images analysis that could be boosted using the artificial intelligence features. We, uh, we can increase the accuracy, for example, for detection of lesions and uh, classification of this lesion. And we can use this also for early diagnosis and response to therapy. Very recently, Lancet published uh, a randomized trial on 88,000 mammographies done in the Netherlands. And uh, they show that basically artificial intelligence together with the radiologist was uh, able to accurately detect the lesion as well as uh, uh, the radiologist, just 4% more, not statistically significant, but is what we expect right now from artificial intelligence. But the good thing is that reducing the workload, keeping the workflow, the analysis of uh, uh, mammography uh, aided by the artificial intelligence uh, was way faster than uh, uh, radiologist uh, itself. It can, it can be used, for example, artificial intelligence can be used for surgical training and artificial intelligence assisted surgery. It can potentially be used for identifying relevant uh, surgeon performance metrics and automatically extracting them. One of the things that we know that is uh, one of the stigma, fortunately, of the surgical uh, surgical research is that if uh, from the predictive modeling, we decide a priori which or which we think 
are the potential variables to input, for example, in a nomogram, artificial intelligence could potentially find out by itself the variables that are related to a given outcome. It's like a backwards analysis. Instead, starting from the variables to identify the outcome with artificial intelligence, especially in the training, you have the outcome and you go backwards to understanding which could potentially be the variables. One of the things that we have to consider, for example, for surgical training, having a third party unbiased way for identifying the metrics or identifying, for example, adverse events. This is part of the ICARUS Global Surgical Collaboration Project. You can basically have something that is going to uh, identify and collect everything possible without uh, having any bias or any justification by the human beings. Another thing that can be used, for example, is the research for clinical trials. It can be used for uh, improving the hypothesis generation or recruiting patients. And very recently, it has been reported the creation of what we call synthetic uh, patient cohorts. Uh, imagine when you're doing a randomized trial, you know, a randomized trial is extremely heavy, is extremely difficult, is extremely challenging, and also could potentially uh, bring some risk. On top of this, uh, after having uh, spent years and years in planning the randomized trial and conducting randomized trial, you're going to find yourself uh, writing always a limitation of the study that is going to reduce the power of your uh, your finding. So imagine to do this in a short period of time, thanks to what we call the synthetic uh, patient courts, which aim uh, basically replicate uh, what uh, uh, a specific or a given population could potentially drug or respond to a, a given treatment. Then you have the big data analysis, maybe one of the most important parts of artificial intelligence. You have a huge amount of data, but you don't know how to deal with this data. Artificial intelligence can give you the chance to analyze those data in a way that is going to be fast, less time consuming, and uh, would require just the human supervision and not the human action in making uh, the, uh, the analysis. It can basically bring to the smart health data recording or personalized screening uh, campaigns, for example, for prostate cancer. And, uh, and then you go basically to what we call precision medicine, genomics, pathomics, radiomics, all together, those omics, those features that are not visible to the human uh, capabilities, but are there. It can be interconnected each other through uh, the artificial intelligence. And then, of course, you have potentialities for treatment efficacy and effectiveness uh, assessment, as well as, for example, uh, the use uh, of uh, new mobile apps that can be used for disease management that are going to empower by AI. Yes, so that, that's really amazing, you know, how many applications we can think of about uh, on this. And, and so, but of course, you guys probably are the one of the very few centers in the world with AI dedicated center to study this new technology. But uh, that's not routine. That's not what uh, the reality nowadays, right? So in other words, on one side, this is all very exciting. And you can think of uh, about all these uh, applications. And uh, as you were mentioning, there are some studies that um, are coming up. And uh, so there is, you know, some evidence that is being built on this. On the other hand, we know that this is not really something that is readily available to everybody in daily practice, clinical practice. So how do you see the future, the next five years? What are the challenges and, and barriers to the implementation of artificial intelligence? How much time do we need to, to see these applied on a more you know, daily basis, you think? So that's an excellent question, Ricardo. And uh, this is basically the uh, core of uh, uh, what we are trying to do at the USC, but also with our partner centers. So one of the things that we have to consider is that, as I was saying, AI is not a new thing. And uh, just looking at the uh, sub-area journals in Saimago that are uh, specific on AI, you have uh, 284 journals that have subsection on artificial intelligence. 
As clinicians, we are starting basically dealing with artificial intelligence year after what the engineers has done over the past 10 and 15 years. And uh, this is extremely exciting because now uh, after the development of the technology, then we can have uh, actually the uh, evaluation of this technology in the clinical settings. And um, one of the main questions that always uh, I have been asked during uh, the meetings, congresses and uh, you know grand rounds is that how much artificial intelligence can be made practical for the practicing physician and for the practicing urology. And now far we are from the implementation of artificial intelligence into our uh, daily practice as physicians. So I would say we are not that far. And uh, as much as uh, the FDA approved uh, already 10 uh, different devices and different softwares that can be used for the semi-automated or automated segmentation, identification and classification of uh, a region of interest, which could potentially be cancers. And uh, this will be released in the market uh, uh, no more than uh, two years from now. The collection of the surgical metrics is already a reality. Look at what uh, Intuitive uh, and the Hugo uh, are doing right now. And the, on your app, basically, you can have all those metrics automatically collected. One of the things that we have to consider in general, or for example, pathology. Pathology, there are already scanners that has uh, AI implemented. When you have to slice uh, a prostate and uh, you have to analyze a prostate, this is going to be a very time-consuming task. And uh, uh, not only that, it's a repetitive task. A repetition of a task, uh, we know that is uh, linked to what we call burnout. In uh, the US, 65% of the, and you know better than me, <laughs> the uh, 65% of the physicians are in burnout. And uh, 57 of the residents who actually are not even started as physician are, has already signs of burnout. And uh, one of the most uh, heavy part, and uh, uh, part of this has a, a huge weight on the burnout is the repetition of the tasks. Imagine you are in your uh, clinic, we have uh, 20 minutes, 20, 25 minutes slot uh, for each one of the patient. And uh, we basically find ourselves uh, reading through the paperwork, making paperwork uh, for 15 to 20 minutes. And then we have just 10 minutes or, or even five minutes to visit the patient and uh, to uh, making a diagnosis and also to reply to the question to the patient. So imagine if uh, we can uh, flip this timing, having 20 minutes talking to the patient, uh, having him or her being satisfied, not only with the diagnosis, but also with all the information you can provide without her or him going to get that information that we know that the pernicious trap of the fake news is always around the corner. And having just five minutes for making all the paperwork. These things actually are already a reality. Uh, there are already some companies uh, that are offering the uh, what we call the recording, the smart recording. You have a microphone, you talk to the patient, and uh, the system automatically organizes the patient notes in a way that it fits for your uh, uh, purposes and hand to the patient basically the outpatient visit uh, paperwork uh, in real time. One of the things I usually say is that artificial intelligence is not magic. Artificial intelligence will never replace physicians. But uh, those physicians who are using AI and uh, who will be interested in, in embracing AI in their daily practice will replace those uh, who are not using it. AI is the smartest way for uh, reducing the workload and creeping the workflow, basically making uh, uh, urology human again. And this will be really disruptive in uh, various ways. And one of the, the things that probably I want to ask you here is that you mentioned about, you know, automation, repeating the task, et cetera. And, and then that's a common question that some of the patients I will ask you is, okay, you're going to do the robotic surgery. So what, what does that mean? Is the, the robot going to do the surgery? So the question is, will we reach the point where will be automated surgery? Is there any data on that? Any Anything that you can tell us about that? 
Yes, definitely. So uh, in uh, May 2023, uh, the Pew Project released uh, uh, one of the biggest survey on artificial intelligence in healthcare for patients. And uh, what basically they found was that patients will be extremely unhappy and uh, not uh, uh, comfortable in uh, having artificial intelligence as part of workflow process uh, for, uh, for medicine. Well, this is basically mainly related to the fact that patients think that a robot uh, will replace us. And, uh, and again, AI is just a way for co-piloting us through, to uh, make, make us our performance better. That's the main thing. We're going to basically be always the same. We're not going to reduce our, our capabilities, but our capabilities is going to be like a superhero. You have superpowers and this superpower is the AI. One of the things that we have to consider in general, and as I was saying before, AI will not replace any one of us. We just need to explain to the patients that AI is only a tool and as a tool will be like a master slave uh, as the robot. Uh, that, of course, is uh, improving uh, the performance of a good surgeon. One of the uh, biggest uh, surgeon, uh, urologic surgeon in Europe, uh, Walter Artibani, is uh, my mentor. He was used to say that a good surgeon is going to be a good surgeon also with a robot, but a bad surgeon is not going to become a good surgeon uh, with a robot. The robot is always only a way for improving your performance. And uh, as long as we are good doctors, we are good physicians, the AI will uh, uh, bring on the table something to uh, um, make it up to speed and up to date also uh, our uh, decision making. Thanks, Joe. And probably the last uh, the last topic we could discuss a little bit about is the uh, impact of AI in the world of uh, you know scientific literature. What's you know you basically can ask a artificial intelligence to write a paper for you, right? So how do we handle this? What's the impact? Because we are all involved in uh, in research and scientific publishing, and how can we work this out? So thank you so much for this question, Ricardo. This is extremely extremely important. Again, we don't want AI for uh, being part of what we call a vicious cycle where you're not generating something new, but you're just rewarding what is uh, already reported. We saw this particular risk uh, with the advent of uh, ChatGPT, large language models, that in starting by November 6, 2022, they have revolutionized the way that people could potentially write publications. Our team started from the very beginning of conducting what we call a living systematic review, monitoring on a weekly basis the research output. And what we figured out was that some of the journals and some of the most important scientists all over the world were claiming or were making the point that this kind of technology, if from one side could potentially be helpful, on the other side could potentially be extremely dangerous uh, because it uh, would stop creation of new contents and uh, scientific contents. So for this reason, our team at the USC, together with the editor-in-chief of the most important journals such as Nature, Nature Medicine, Nature Machine Intelligence, Lancet, uh, eLife, uh, PNAS, the American Physics Society, all the top 50 journals, plus Wiley, Elsevier Plus, and the Springer Natures, and the COPE and the WAIM. So the COPE is the Committee of Publishing Ethics. We put together a group of people for creating what we call the Kangaroo Guidelines. Kangaroo stands for ChatGPT, Generative AI, and Large Language Models for Accountable Use and Reporting. Aims basically to provide the newest guidelines endorsed by the Equator Network and hopefully from uh, all the journals all over the world for uh, uh, reducing the uh, possible use of this kind of technology, the misconduction, let's put it in this way, of uh, uh, the use of this technology in uh, uh, academia uh, and scientific writing. Um, very recently has been released a publication in Plastic Surgery uh, where they were uh, claiming that ChatGPT will be excellent, an excellent tool for uh, finding the gaps in the literature. 
Again, remember that ChatGPT is stupid. It's not uh, understanding basically which kind of gaps are clinically relevant. And most importantly, it's not up to date. So therefore, if, for example, we're going to use this kind of technology for finding uh, uh, the gaps in the literature, that is totally useless. Or for example, I hear that some colleagues started using it for making reviews uh, of the publications. This is uh, basically insane. When an editor uh, reach out to us, uh, they, reaching out, they are reaching out to us because of our expertise. And we really want to make sure uh, that we provide the best uh, review of the paper in the interest of the journal, but also in the main interest of uh, uh, the authors and what they could potentially deliver into our daily practice and on the patient, on the patient side. Having this kind of technology, going through the paper and just providing a, a sterile, not uh, a personalized way for making the publication better, that is basically, uh, you know, totally useless. So therefore, we established this uh, initiative that has been uh, released uh, by on Nature in uh, July, in June 2023. And now we are on the process for making one of the biggest Delphi consensus in science with almost uh, 230,000 invites for being part of this Delphi consensus. Thank you. I think our time is up. And again, I would like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is a very timely topic, uh, really is going to impact our future. And I think we should be aware of all these things we've been discussing. And uh, I'd like to thank also DAU and Yezu team, Jujita, for assisting us in putting up this podcast series. Again, thank you so much for having me here and for giving me the chance to give some uh, uh, insights about uh, what uh, I feel is uh, one of the most exciting uh, new things in uh, the field of medicine. Again, uh, I just want to close saying uh, and uh, repeating again that AI will be the perfect co-pilot. AI will not replace us, but those of us who will uh, start using artificial intelligence will replace who don't. I think this is the perfect final message. So thanks again, Joe, and thank you again to the EAU. Thank you, Professor Ortorino and Associate Professor Cacciamani, for sharing your expertise in this enlightening EAU podcast episode. We appreciate your valuable insights. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us throughout this series on Euro, oncologic surgery driven by new technology. We hope you found the discussions informative and engaging. To keep up with the latest EAU podcasts and stay informed on urological advancements, be sure to subscribe to our EAU podcast channel on your favourite podcast app. Until next time, take care and stay curious.